Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. In 1992, Ross Brand, a professor of Judeo-Islamic studies at Cornell University, began getting invitations to conferences and colloquia about medieval Spain. Why? Because 1992 was the quincentenary of some really important things that happened that most people know about. We don't always think about them and what significance they have for the world in which we live. Things like the 500th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's first voyage to the Americas. 1992 also marked 500 years since Jews were expelled from Christian Spain and the fall of the last Muslim stronghold in Spain, in Granada, to Christian forces. I went to many of these, and I started collecting every flyer, every announcement, every book, publication, museum, exhibition, catalog from all of those events of 1992, with the idea of coming back to that at some later point. Bran has now returned to the idea that first intrigued him, Namely, how and why the period that had all but officially ended by 1492, known in Jewish history as Sfarad, or the Golden Age of Jews in Spain, and to Muslims as Al-Andalus, how that period has come down to us through the ages as something unique and exceptional. Now, if you've studied even just a little bit of Jewish history, you probably have at least heard of this Golden Age. You may not know exactly when it was. It was roughly from the 8th century through the end of the 12th century of the Common Era. And you may be only vaguely aware that this so-called Golden Age happened when the central and southern parts of what is now modern Spain were under Muslim rule. But the fact that you know anything at all about this epoch of Jewish history, and that it's still known as a special period, is interesting. How, in fact, did the Golden Age become known as a Golden Age? Well, as it turns out, prominent Jews of that time and place themselves saw their era as special and unique. And they made sure to express and document its specialness, a trope that 19th century German-Jewish historians would later pick up on. They picked up on it and created something that some scholars call the Sephardi mystique, and other scholars call legitimately the golden age of the Jews in medieval Spain, also sometimes the golden age of Jewish culture in medieval Spain. And... uh, For the last, let's say, 150 years, the nature of this golden age, its contours, where it applies, where it may not apply, what its significance is, has been a focal point of scholarly study. And uh, over time, and especially, I would say, in the 20th century and into the 21st century, in museums, in popular literature, in Jewish discourse in general, this matter of the Golden Age and its import for Jewish history and Jewish life in our time have been uh, the subject of discussion and also of debate. Bran is one of the main contributors to that debate. Now, to be clear, his purpose is not to dispute that the period we're talking about was, in fact, unique. Jewish figures such as Maimonides, Solomon ibn Gvirol, Yehuda Halevi, and Samuel the Nagid produced extraordinary works of philosophy, rabbinical commentary, and poetry. Love poems, wine poems, martial poems about war, reflective philosophical verse, virtually every uh, theme that existed in Arabic poetry was translated 
I mean artistic translation, transferred into Hebrew literary creativity. And this was an entirely new venture for Jewish literary intellectuals. Jews also rose to prominent positions in Muslim royal courts. And in general, Jewish culture flowered. It really was, in many ways, a special epoch in Jewish history. What interests Bran is the fact that, beginning in the 10th century, Muslim, Jewish, and Christian communities began to document and promote the idea that there was something special and uniquely valuable about their communities. What I became interested in is the fact that this can't be simply a historical accident, that three religious communities living on the peninsula, for my purposes, particularly the Muslims and the Jews, discovered this topos, this theme, and developed it into a diachronic trope, by which I mean it crosses historical periods and has a trajectory of its own that lasts for hundreds of years down to our time. Bran investigates the origins of this theme in its earliest phases. Why was it developed? What value did it hold for the Jews, Muslims, and Christians who created versions of it? And how did they use it? And what could he learn if he studied this phenomenon comparatively, looking at Jewish, Muslim, and Christian sources side by side? A lot, as it turns out. For example, looking at artifacts reveals just how small and relatively insignificant Jewish communities were compared to Muslim and Christian communities. The artifacts are more available on the Islamic side. There's virtually nothing except a few very, very small synagogues that were transformed into churches later on in uh, Iberian history uh, on the Jewish side. There's something that uh, we all can learn a lot from. I've mentioned that the Jewish community was a tiny minority. From the perspective of Jewish history, from the perspective of those German Jewish scholars who popularized this idea of the exceptionalism of Svarad for their own purposes, in the 19th century, you could get the impression that the Jews were everywhere, in every place, uh, were, were, were major players um, on, on the, in the Iberian scene. And to a certain extent, they were, but they were a tiny, tiny minority. And if we look at some of the surviving monuments in Toledo, in Cordoba today, all converted into either museums or or churches or historical monuments. We see just how small they are. So why then does this period loom so large in the Jewish historical imagination? Well, mainly because of the literary artifacts preserved in the Cairo Geniza, a treasure trove of Jewish manuscripts from around 850 to 1250 of the Common Era that includes many letters, transcripts of poetry, personal correspondence, economic documents, and other writings from Jewish Spain that were never meant to be part of the historical record, but that reveal a lot about what was on the minds of Jews and how similar some of their writings are to those of Muslims and Christians. There is a 7th century text by a very important figure in the history of the Spanish church, a man by the name of St. Isidore of Seville, in which he there's a prose poem at the very beginning of his history of the Goths in the 7th century, in which he attributes to God's interest in the well-being and the prosperity of the people, Christian people inhabiting the peninsula at the time, that the agricultural riches of Hispania, is what he would call it, were, were a gift from God. 
Brand noticed very similar language in a 10th century Islamic source. That God looked upon Islamic Spain now, in his case, Al-Andalus, uh, with favor and uh, enabled a, a great society to come out of this time and place owing to the agricultural bounty of, of the land. Let me just read a few of of the things that he, he wrote. The land of Al-Andalus is the western extreme of the fourth clime. In the opinion of the knowledgeable, it is a land abundant in lowlands with good soil, fertile agricultural settlements, flowing with plentiful rivers and abundant fresh springs. Venomous beasts are rare. It is temperate in climate, weather, and breezes. Its spring, fall, winter, and summer are relatively temperate and well-balanced, such that no season generates excess. Its fruits are ripe, at most times not wanton. Bran related that Islamic source to a letter written by Hazdai ibn Shaprut, an important Jewish communal leader, court physician, and diplomat working for the Islamic rulers of Cordoba. By virtue of his influence at court as a court physician to the caliph and as uh, a diplomat and as someone conversant in several different languages and as a medical researcher, he acquired influence and wealth and sway over the Jewish community of the realm, represented them at court, and developed an ambition to put Jewish Svarad on the map, as it were, among the Jewish communities of the world. And this is what uh, a letter that he has one of his, his own court secretaries write, I hostai, son of Isaac, may his memory be blessed, belonging to the exiled Jews of Jerusalem in Spain, Sfarat. We indeed, who are the remnant of the captive Israelites, servants of my Lord, the King, that is the Muslim King, are dwelling peacefully in the land of our sojourning. For our God has not forsaken us, nor has his shadow departed from us. The name of our land in which we dwell is called in the sacred tongue Sfarad, but in the language of the Arabs, Al-Andalus. The land is rich, abounding in rivers, springs, and aqueducts, a land of corn, oil, and wine, of fruits, and all manner of delicacies. It has pleasure gardens and orchards, fruitful trees of every kind, including the leaves of the tree upon which the silkworm feeds of which we have great abundance. In the mountains and woods of our country, cochineal is gathered in great quantity. There are also found among us mountains covered by crocus with veins of silver, gold, copper, iron, tin, lead, sulfur, porphyry, marble, and crystal. Merchants congregate in it, and traffickers from the end of the earth, from Egypt and adjacent countries, bringing spices, precious stones, splendid wares for kings and princes, and all the desirable things of Egypt. Our king has collected very large treasures of silver, gold, precious things, and valuables, such as no king has ever collected. Ibn Shaprut's letter, Brand says, is a sort of message to Jewish communities around the world that Sfarad is a place where Jews can and do thrive. And this marks for Sephardi Jews a turning point in their history where they begin to advertise and in due course think of themselves as exceptional. 
In fact, the Islamic rulers of Al-Andalus, too, were anxious to establish their own legitimacy in the Muslim world, where the main powers resided in the east. In other words, the Muslims and the Jews who lived among them both had interest in establishing themselves and went about it in similar ways. For Jews, it's part of the larger story of their golden age. Because their native language is Arabic at the time, and educated Jews are reading and writing everything that educated Muslims are reading and writing. They're totally conversant in the belletristic literature, the theological, philosophical, scientific literature of that time and place, all of which is being conducted in Arabic. And it didn't begin with the Jews in Islamic Spain in the 10th century. This really goes back to developments in Baghdad at the end of the 9th century, also in Arabic, where Jews begin to think of the value for Jewish culture, for Jewish life, for the Jewish experience to harness the power, the intellectual power, the cultural power, the interest in making beautiful things with words in Arabic, but transposing that into Jewish life and uh, to a certain extent also to revive using the Hebrew language and to go back to the Hebrew Bible and to find what is linguistically and artistically beautiful in it for Jewish purposes in a way that Muslims were doing for the Arabic of their Quran. So this idea begins sort of in late 9th century Baghdad. It spreads across North Africa and really finds a home in mid-10th century Islamic Spain for the Jews. The idea of the exceptional nature of Sfarad for Jews and Al-Andalus for Muslims developed over the centuries as political realities evolved. Early in the 11th century, the unified Muslim state in mid and southern Spain fractured into city-states, resulting in even greater Jewish visibility in Islamic society. In the Kingdom of Granada, a Jew known as Samuel the Nagid became prime minister. He was a rabbinic scholar. He was obviously a communal figure. He was a Hebrew grammarian who wrote about Hebrew grammar in Arabic. By the way, his rabbinical writings are also in Arabic. Many of these came down to us in manuscript form from the Middle Ages, some discovered in the Cairo Geniza. And in literary terms, a first of the greatest of the four most noteworthy Hebrew poets of the period. And he writes about his experiences as a leader of the Jewish community of his realm. He writes about uh, his Muslim adversaries. He writes about his Jewish adversaries and rivals in Hebrew poetry. And he writes about his accomplishments and what an extraordinarily great person he is and how he finds himself at the head of a Jewish community that is truly exceptional. Another of the great Sephardi Jewish poets, Solomon Ibn Gavirol, writes a poem bragging on his mentor, Samuel the Nagid, declaring him to be a greater rabbinical scholar than Haigaon, one of the giants of Jewish scholarship in the Muslim East. And he writes a poem in which he says, The Rav Haya Kilo Haya, Rabbi Haigaon, is, is as if he never was. It's a play on his name, 
when compared to Samuel the Nagid as a rabbinical scholar. For Brand, Ethan Gvirol's poem is a telling example of Sephardi Jewish efforts to establish their communities as important religious and scholarly centers that rivaled centers in the East, and it paralleled Muslim efforts along the same lines. Now, zooming ahead in time, long after the Jews had been expelled from Spain in 1492, German-Jewish historians latched onto the trope of the specialness of the golden age of Jews in Spain as a model for their own situation. What they were enamored of is that they believed that the Jews of Sfarad were in their exceptionalism and in their intellectual values and in their their interest in all things that were beautiful were a, a model that could serve the Jewish community of, of the 19th century, of living in two worlds at the same time. The rise of the modern Zionist movement in the 19th century complicated this view, at least in terms of politics, because Farad was a model of Jews thriving in the diaspora. But even leading Zionists, like Chaim Nachman Bialik, admired the poetry of Samuel the Nagid, even Virol, and other Sephardi poets. He was interested in disseminating it. He collected it and published it and wrote about it. Uh, he was not unique in this regard, but for him, this was a model of how to create a modern Hebrew literature in Palestine for the Jews of that period, even before the creation of the state. Today, for most Jews who aren't scholars of medieval Jewish Spain, the Golden Age doesn't factor much, or really at all, in their daily lives. But for Palestinians and Muslims in other Arab lands, Al-Andalus is still an important touchstone as an example of how Jews and Muslims aren't destined to be enemies fighting over land. According to these Muslims, There was this time and place of relative harmony and prosperity for each of the three religious communities, and that they are uh, by no means uh, inimical to one another's well-being, uh, and it's only the political circumstances created by modern Zionism in the 20th century and now into the 21st that created all of the problems between these two peoples. In modern Spain, meanwhile, there's been a decades-long battle between conservative politicians and historians who try to minimize Spain's Muslim and Jewish past, and liberal scholars and writers who want to celebrate that past as a sort of proto-multiculturalism. And so, Brand says, the trope he's studying is just as relevant today as it has been over the centuries. The resonances for the world in which we live today with North, with immigration from North Africa into Spain, with the ongoing political struggles between Muslims and Jews in, or Arabs and Jews in the land west of the Jordan River, and I could go on and on. This is, uh, has these echoes and resonances, and it's utilized in various ways uh, for people's particular purposes, culturally, religiously, politically, in the world we inhabit. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.